0: Humans' first expression, like our first dream, was an aesthetic one. Speech was a poetic outcry rather than a demand for communication. Original humans, shouting their consonants, did so in yells of awe and anger at their tragic state, at their own self-awareness and at their own helplessness as they embraced the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried... Kill all the
1: poor. You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Meiji. The wave returns to the ocean, where it came from, and where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people.
0: Welcome, friends, to episode 148 of Embrace the Void, where you're either on it or you've never tried it. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we have part two of our discussion on social justice and street epistemology. So here's one I prepared All earlier. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in Something. My guest this week continues to be Reed Nice Wonder of the Cordial Curiosity YouTube channel and president of Street Epistemology International. Would you like to once again say hi to the Void, Reed?
1: Hello again, Void. Thanks for coming back.
0: Thanks for sticking around. I really appreciate it. I really do find it valuable, especially when I have folks on who I feel like are coming from a substantially different perspective uh, to have a little bit extra time for it. Plus, you will not escape the enlightening round at the end of this episode. So... Uh, look forward to that. The enlightening um, round. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I believe the episode you listened to of a previous one, I didn't have that in yet. So you're going to, it's going to be a fun treat. But before we get okay. there, um, we were in our, and at the end of that part two, we were just talking a lot about um, sort of getting into the, what I think are the weeds on a lot of these specific accusations, specific critiques of critical theory. Um, another one that I think that comes up, that's a major topic in all of this is free expression. Um, And I'm curious, right, do you think, first of all, just to check your temperature here, do you think it's valuable to limit some people's access to certain platforms so... For example, right, Alex Jones was removed for promoting demonstrable falsehoods and causing substantial harm uh prior to being removed. He uh, you know, and being sued, like he didn't experience serious repercussions as a result of that behavior. So I'm curious, do you think it's it's a good thing that Alex Jones was removed from Twitter?
1: Was it good for Alex Jones to be removed from Twitter? I'm leaning yes. Mm-hmm. Um There's always, you know, there's the private companies can do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Although if Twitter is becoming our new public square, there's the value of liberal science of like, the ideal is just to protect public criticism and then people can fight about various ideas and, you know, moral errors burned away. Bad ideas are going to be criticized, you know, and go away. Mm -hmm. Just become more marginalized. Um, If Alex Jones still had a platform on Twitter. I'm sure he'd still be you know, saying a bunch of crazy things about the pandemic and stuff. And I'm sure he would be showing, you know, spreading, you know, false, you know, ideas about what to do about the pandemic. Maybe people who listen to him would go out more often or, you know, do things that would be dangerous. So dangerous, you know, it, ideas have consequences. And he, seems to be consistently putting out dangerous ideas.
0: So, okay. Do you think that on, peop- anybody who puts out dangerous and deliberate, like dangerous and demonstrably provable falsehoods should be equally sort of deplatformed in that kind of way?
1: On Twitter? Um, slightly leaning towards yes. Okay. But it, so if it's I, hard to, Yeah, go ahead. It's hard to say. And it's like where do you draw the line? And then it's like the slippery slope thing.
0: Well, I'm just curious about that. Right. If I feel like if a critical theorist says, I think that certain people should be deplatformed from these organizations, you know, like they shouldn't be allowed on here because they're saying demonstrably false things that are harmful, right, then they get accused of being deeply illiberal, right? They're silencing free speech. They're, uh, you know, not engaging in the famous collision of truth with error, right? They're not They're not doing the mill dance properly. Um, but, like, you wouldn't then call yourself a critical theorist because you just said what you said, right? You still see yourself as being largely liberal. So I guess I, I don't—I wonder if this whole critique of them as fundamentally illiberal is just— mistaken or is an exaggeration of like this idea that there's just a a genuine debate amongst liberals about you know how much speech do we really actually have to platform you know when is it too much harm that we should um limit that kind of behavior in some way what do you think about that kind of double standard
1: yeah liberal like liberalism really liberal science is not an unregulated thing. We do restrict ideas, especially in academia. Um and in society. It's um it's like the thing where let's see, I think the quote is let me try to find it. To believe incorrectly is never a crime, but simply to believe is never to have knowledge. So that's just in general in society. But then people can put out their ideas in various ways. They can Yell out in the street street corner, various ideas, or they can sign up for a Twitter account and put out their ideas much more efficiently. Or they can try to go into academia and try to become a professor and try to spread ideas that way. So, in academia, you restrict ideas that do not pass muster, that do not get. We're not going to have creationism in biology class or astrology in astronomy. That's there for good reason. But in general, in public, private companies can have standards. Um, I think it would be better if they would lean towards protecting criticism in general and lean towards keeping speech open so we can do the meal dance and criticize Mm -hmm. everything and do that type of thing.
0: Mm -hmm. So you said there you don't think that we should be teaching creationism in biology. So you, you feel like there are... Genuine cases where academia should say we're not going to spend time and energy and resources on this particular idea, and we're not going to, you know, put money towards platforming people or giving them tenureship or whatever, so that they can be young Earth creationists or something like that. Yeah, you think that's like, ethically acceptable.
1: Yeah, if the consensus of the critical checkers of public criticism says this thing is false. Um, like obviously, so you have no. You know, you're not going to be a part of our uh, people of critical checkers. Like your ideas are false, so we can ignore you now and go away.
0: So, so what do we do then if we say if somebody wants to say, well, look? You know, for more than 100 years, we've observed the evidence about race realism, and the evidence has been faulty and flawed from the beginning. And every time people make claims about race realism or, you know, IQ differences uh, in in various kinds of ways, it's based on misreadings of the data or something like this. Or that, like, you know, the vast majority of the, um, you know, academic community—I'm not saying this is necessarily the case, but if it were to be the case, right, if we were to come to that point on the evidence— do you think that it would be good to deplatform people who were race realists
1: if we if we came to know that race realism is false then we should not have race, real, race realism in academia? Yeah, if we we had a
0: fairly high confidence in the idea that, you know, again, inductive system can never have certainty, but like, we have very good reason, it seems like lots and lots of evidence to suggest that these, you know, like that, like Charles Murray is just debunked in a variety of substantive kinds of ways. um, And that combined with the fact that his work is deliberately aimed at driving a conservative agenda um rather than you know just that truth some might argue I don't, I, we wouldn't want i think include that part in the argument right but like broadly speaking you, what what it sounds like you're saying is we do have an obligation to distinguish between people who are holding a plausible position and trying to defend it in good faith and people who are yeah. holding implausible positions or not trying to defend them in good faith
1: yeah it has nothing to do with harm it is everything to do with truth like if hmm. whatever is false, is just not going to be in, in academia, in, in, our, in our textbooks. It's, it has nothing to do with harm.
0: So what do we do then if like the creationists, like the flat earthers, right, the race realists eternally want to say, you just haven't given our data a fair look, and it's actually still good data, and we're still right, and this is oppression, and it's because of social justice run amok. How do we adjudicate that kind of issue in society, do you feel like?
1: um we can continue to ridicule them or ignore them
0: do you think we should ridicule race realists really
1: um i don't know i don't know i haven't looked into that idea um uh -hmm. there's like extreme claims about race realism and then there's less extreme but i haven't looked into that idea and i don't know if it's that level of needing to be ignored or, or ridiculed
0: Okay. So, like, for example, if someone said there are IQ differences between the races that are biologically driven and unlikely to be changed by, you know, much more social involvement, that that the gap is closed as much as it's going to, broadly speaking, do you feel like that's plausible, worth ridiculing, or...?
1: That's not worth ridiculing or ignoring as of yet, as Mm -hmm. far as I know. Um, I don't know. But yeah, mm -hmm.
0: Okay, um, you mentioned right this this mill collision with error idea, and this is one where you know I teach mill I, I think that's valuable, even though I always like to call him a cop. Uh, but I think like you know he is it's hard to ignore the importance of his work in shaping modern liberal thought. Um, and at the same time, I get nervous because I'm worried that people have confused an ideology with an empirical truth, right the ideology here being we ought to have free open discourse, right? That like in an ideal utopia, we could have that free open discourse and everything would go great, right? Whereas I'm concerned that it has transitioned in people's minds into an empirical claim that this is actually the most effective or an effective method and that that is true potentially in all circumstances, right? Because the world that Mill is writing in is very different from the world that we live in. Um, And I'm curious if you think that you know, the role of the internet in the world, um, the the way that misinformation can be propagated in such a way where no amount of good faith argument really can try to even drown it out, like, does that change the state of play a little bit? And does it make you sort of a little more uh, hesitant about, discord, about this kind of debate as the remedy for um, so many of society's ills?
1: Yeah, with... Liberal science comes from the book *Kindly Inquisitors. It was written originally in like 92, I think. Mm -hmm. And then a new version came out in like 2013. Mm -hmm. And that was right when social media was starting to like get going. So he has a lot of arguments, you know, actually saying, you know, liberal science, open public criticism is necessary and is kind of the best way for progress, knowledge, and moral to happen. Protecting public criticism, you know, having the rules of no final say, no personal authority, but now there's the internet and now there's social media and there's, you know, ideas can be put out there and not get criticized and you'll never see the criticism. You only see your own echo chamber. So maybe things have changed. I'm open to hearing, I think his arguments are still very strong and
0: um, talking about it. I mean, what about the just sort of genuine empirical concern that some folks raise that, like, the reality of if I watch a YouTube debate, right, is that, like... I go to it with probably preconceptions, generally speaking, right? That's probably how I got there is I was interested in one side or the other. And I generally mm-hmm. speaking go into it watching and sort of being in favor of one side. And that generally speaking, not always there are cases to the contrary, but um, by and large, I will come away from it being reinforced in my views, having seen the person on my side is making the better arguments and having seen the other side is making worse arguments. Um, how do you feel like, do you feel like there's really any, Quality check that we can be doing on how much this this idea is actually working versus just reinforcing mindsets.
1: Yeah, I think this gets us back to street epistemology, which is about epistemic virtues, trying to mm-hmm. practice them and put them in practice. And part of that is being open to being wrong, and also trying to disconfirm your own beliefs and seeking out disconfirmation for your whatever you think is true. So mm-hmm. it's like a part you know we need to develop, you know, society the people need to have more of these epistemic virtues where they try to disconfirm their beliefs. They try to Mm -hmm. have those conversations and not just seek out confirmation.
0: What would you say, since you mentioned that? I'm curious, what would disconfirm your 90% confidence that, that, like— well, I guess it wasn't I percent concept. It was a real problem. What would be what would sort of shake your concern that this was a substantial problem, if you have any, or I guess maybe you, d- you really do think that this is not actually that critical theory is a just mostly a fringe issue.
1: The critical social justice problem,
0: mm-hmm. which yeah. I think we're trying to find is like
1: the like I think James and Peter have the claim that critical social justice is a Trojan horse for society to you know have like a a revolution of these ideas. Like they want civilization to be completely revolutionized. It's like a that type of dire situation. Mm-hmm. what would just confirm my idea that that is, you know, the people who put forward these ideas, that's their real motivations. Um, I just need to see people who put, you know, the academics explicitly been when asked say, no, we do not want to, dismantle capitalism or science to disrupt you know these types of things. We don't want to level that type of thing. We just want more fair fairness, we want more opportunity, explicitly you know saying they want liberal things, not revolutionary values, revolutionary ideas. I guess specifically what could I see? Like if Robin DiAngelo, I think mm-hmm. she wrote wrote the book White Fragility. Um, what could she say that would make me think our ideas are not that much, not that bad? It's like I would like to see the possibility that people can that humanity as a society can get to a place where pretty much we worry about racism the much as we worry about murder for most people in general it's like we're never going to get to zero murder and we're probably never going to get to zero racism but we can do better with both now in society but we can get to a point where we've done a lot and not everyone participates in a systemic you know racist society and not everyone is individually racist because they just they're talking with people of different races and that that is there in that situation always forever. If you,
0: you know, so some optimism, I guess is what I'm hearing a little bit here.
1: Yeah. If I I heard more optimism, less cynicism,
0: that would be be good. So that's, I mean, that's tricky, right? Cause like, we want to give people a chance to like, well, so here, let me, how should I put this right? You're, your concern is that they're doing something wrong initially, or that they are a danger or a problem in some kind of way, or that that seems to be the, the predominant view of these the you know the critics here is that there is a substantial threat here. But if there's a substantial threat, um. I'm not sure how them just being slightly more optimistic about society would falsify that claim that there is a substantial threat. Do you know what I'm saying? That like Robin, De- you know, like uh, I just listened to an interview with um nehisi Coates. Do you feel like he is a critical, I mean, I think he would probably be classified as a critical race theorist, right? Yeah. 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 And he was more optimistic a little bit than he usually is. Right. In oh, yeah? that interview with Ezra Klein and like, Um, But, you know, he's still very critical in a variety of ways, but he was like talking about how he's just feeling slightly more optimistic in various kinds of ways. And I I find this optimism thing interesting because, you know, I don't like to get into psychology when I'm debating or arguing with people because I think it's wrong to try to, you know, psychoanalyze somebody in the middle of it but at the same time i do think when we're analyzing these movements it's interesting to sort of observe what common themes you see and i think one common complaint i do actually see is you know the critical theory bums people out a lot right (laughs) like it's depressing right it makes you feel bad a lot of the time and like um i know i think part of a large part of james's concern is that it makes people feel bad about things that they shouldn't feel bad about or something like that um but this is a common problem that i see lobbed at ethicists all the time right like ethics broadly speaking makes people depressed right this is why everybody hates ethics professors (laughs) so i guess i try to under i'm trying to understand if ethicists can be cynical which we sure can right why why do critical theorists have to act more optimistic about the situation why why would that be necessary for you to feel like they are less of a danger
1: um i think because their cynicism leads to wanting a revolution but if they're mm-hmm. optimistic, they would be more incremental, more wanting to reform our current systems that we have currently rather than
0: revolution. Okay. What do you ima- – like, give me, give me your dystopian critical theory future, <laughs> right? If they enact their revolution, what do you think the world looks like?
1: I don't know. And they and another criticism James says is they don't know. They just want to tear everything down and then we'll figure it out. Um. I mean, do you think that's
0: true? Do you think that they don't have positive goals, like specific things that they would like to see change in the world?
1: I think they do. Um, I think they have good intentions. It's just the method matters. And we need to know the world as it is to get good policy so we don't run into reality with bad methods.
0: So there was a flip there. You just went, I mean, like, unless I misunderstood you, right? At one second, you were saying the problem is... Um, The means is not effective. Um, And then the other problem was that like their intentions themselves are bad in some kind of way.
1: Their intentions are very good. They want a better world for everybody, for especially historically marginalized groups. Um, They want equity. They
0: want. So you think they want genuine equity, right? Like okay. you don't think that they just want? You, well, I mean, look. Some people's critique is uh, they're they're claiming they want equity, but really, what they want is disproportionate power for themselves, for people who are like them, for mar- what they see as marginalized groups, right?
1: Yeah, they do need. They would need power to get equity, possibly because. You know, you need to take down people to get to equity, possibly. Instead mm-hmm. of lifting everyone up to the top, maybe some people have to go down to the middle, the bottom, or just you know reverse some things for a while. Um, so that could be a tyrannical, authoritarian
0: concern. Mm-hmm. With- Right. Though, as you pointed out, right, we can have just as much of a a, 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 a tyrannical concern when it comes to equality of opportunity or, you know, any attempt at social change could be done in an extremist or authoritarian kind of way. Um, I guess the question is, what about critical social theory means that it's going to be more likely to engage in that than some other view?
1: I think because what we have is slow, but it seems to be getting things better consistently, possibly. Um, and then you've got the Enlightenment now, Steven Pinker arguments and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and i buy into that a little bit. So I think we have methods that seem to be working. Um, but And if we just consistently use them instead of switching to other, you know, more cynical revolutionary methods, we just need to keep going and do them more... Uh, you know, more liberally, you know, mm-hmm. keep, keep them consistently liberal and we will inevitably
0: make progress. Do you, would you agree that Steven Pinker maybe leaves out some important ways in which things are not in fact getting better and might be getting substantially worse that are not in fact being improved by incremental change?
1: Yeah people get really mad when it says things were better than ever and now well, we have a been- well, Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm not trying to get emotional about it. I'm trying to say I think that you have to selectively cherry pick the data a little bit to you know leave out important ways in which it seems like things are getting substantially worse um and I was just curious if you were willing if, if you wanted to sort of acknowledge that like on a variety it of fronts you it know, could be wealth, cherry picking Right. Systemic wealth inequality. Right. Or or income mm-hmm. wealth gaps. Right. Are getting much worse. It seems like um, climate change. Right. Getting substantially worse. I assume you're uh, you agree yeah. that climate change is continuing to get worse. Right. A so very, very big problem. So for for folks who look at those kind of existential crises. Right, Given that um, radical wealth inequality is a substantial precursor to societal collapse, um, and given that there is you know concerns of you know it's not that that racial inequality or racial uh, animus, Itself. Well, here's what I would say: is that racial animus itself has gotten worse as part of the increased polarization of politics uh, in our country. Um, so, I think there are concerns on those fronts as well as the the massive existential risk that if we don't do anything, there could be massive climate change in our lifetimes. Um, you know, what do you say to folks who say, "Look, based on those things, I lean towards a slightly more revolutionary approach right now. Maybe I'm not going to just burn it all down, but you know, I want to see much more radical change than it sounds like you're leaning towards with your incrementalist approach."
1: Um, I'm still open to a revolutionary change, possibly. I, you know, the IDW folks, uh, like Brett Weinstein and. Eric Weinstein, I've heard of their their conversations and they're kind of revolutionary a little bit. Um,
0: That's a charitable way to describe them, certainly. They are they are on the fringe of ideas, which the fringe could be, I guess, the cutting edge, depending on how you look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh.
1: So it all, I guess it all depends on what what are we what are we trying to do? What are our goals and methods and and have these methods been tested? And like, I'm just pragmatic a little bit. So I just, and I just, we have a bunch of, you know, the American system of a bunch of states, and we have a bunch of problems in all the states, and mm-hmm. just do, you know, experiment and see what helps. And maybe, okay. you know, with climate change is like a global thing that we, that's an issue, that's a systemic problem that needs to be done systemically with yeah. nation, nation uh, cooperation.
0: So it sounds like you at least agree on the climate change issue, the wealth inequality. Are you for like a progressive, like a very strong progressive income tax?
1: I'm still like trying to learn about politics and taxes in general. Like I could probably could, I'm not very strong either way. I don't know too much about it. I would lean towards, yes, Uh Uh, progressive taxes probably would be good.
0: Yeah. I mean I'm just I guess I'm just trying to get a sense of like this this distinction between good and bad kinds of equity still seems very vague to me. And like sure like I, I can see a you know like a an extreme far out there version of um equity that says, you know, everyone has to have absolutely the exact same outcome, but like pretty much for the most part I think real realistic versions of equity are things like, you know, a maximin account from from Rawls that would say um you know, if you're going to have inequality in your society, economic inequality, for example, if there's going to be wealthy people and less well off people, you have to redistribute wealth either through just giving people money on the low end or providing social safety nets or in some way improving their quality of life so that they are also benefited from being in this system that is you know, unequal. And then and then he says, look, if you can manage that, right, if you can li- really genuinely lift all boats through your inequality, then the inequality is ethical. It's acceptable in this kind of way. Are mm-hmm. you on board with that kind of equity? Yeah. Okay. What if we found empirically that the redistribution of wealth in that way wasn't closing the equity gaps if it's only class-based and it doesn't take into account things like gender or race, right? Mm. So, for example, there's some data that suggests that the wealth, you know, the racial wealth gap is not closing um, and that even if we did substantial redistribution of wealth to the lower income side of our society, it would not still substantially close the racial wealth gap. Do you think that that gives at least some ethical justification for something like redistribution of wealth along racial lines?
1: I think that gives us ethical permission to try different things, and Mm -hmm. we have ways of trying it in different places, and I'd Mm -hmm. love to see how that works out.
0: So you'd be in favor of trying affirmative action in various kinds of ways to both financial would you just financial or would it also be you're okay with other kinds of affirmative action if we can show that that's the only real like and i mean here preferential rather than procedural affirmative action i mean here mm-hmm. you know genuinely taking into account the features that liberal as i think they point out right um liberalism ultimately wants us to not worry about these features right ultimately we don't want to care about race um but in order to get to that just outcome there may be a period of time where we do have to care about race
1: um i'm ambiguous about that
0: i mean yes okay i'm just i'm curious because i think my, my feeling in a lot of this is you know, when, when you watch the video of you and James, um, what it feels to me kind of uncharitably dunking on some person on the street and, and like <laughs> describing their views in ways that don't that like doesn't seem to me like when Anthony, you know, dissects the video and says, here's where this went well. Here's where things could have come, gone better. It feels more like, you know, a dunking video. Right. Um, mm. You know. If you if all you see is that video, of course this stuff looks absolutely insane to you, right? But if you if you and I have this kind of conversation and I lay out these kinds of specific examples and we discuss the nuances, then it doesn't seem nearly so crazy, right?
1: Yeah, as long as we're in the Mott version of it and not the revolutionary crazy Bailey version of it.
0: Well, but the revolutionary side, you agreed, I mean, it seems like that, like, you know, if a person has a good case against incrementalism, then it's not so, you know, Bailey to suggest that maybe stronger means are necessary, right? It's like, you could ultimately still disagree, but I guess my point is that idea is not this kind of caricature of, you know, people just being really, really anti-white and so wanting to burn it all down or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. So I worry, So, like, let me give you another example. Here's a quote, and I'm just curious what your take is on this quote, right? Um, you do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate them, bring them up to the starting line of a race, and then say you're free to compete with others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. How, how do you personally respond to a quote like that? Do you feel like you're sympathetic to that?
1: sympathetic to that. It's like the end there. If you're claiming it now or everything's completely fair because now the fair procedure is available, but someone's already gone forward so much. Um, Is this, is this framing though, the best way to think about progress and fairness um, after a certain amount of time has gone through? I don't know if like, if we started at zero and now we're at like a thousand meters and the person is a thousand fifty meters with a lot of progress, you know, in, in time, like we both have made a lot of progress. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just hard to say.
0: So if we were in a situation where there was not being progress, there was not progress being made, right. It feels like that, like, for example, the racial wealth gap is not closing. Do you then feel like you are more sympathetic to, more um aggressive me- measures for creating equity within that race
1: possibly mm-hmm. i, I want to know the reality of how the how those gaps are being caused okay and i need to know if that if the gap is rigorously studied and mm-hmm. what 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 really does close the gap mm-hmm. what and what doesn't
0: Yeah, and I'm sympathetic on the, like, what does and doesn't work side of things. And I do think, right, I'll I'll throw a bone here, right, I do think that we have to really be careful to not jump at anything that feels like it's fixing the problem without sufficient evidence that it actually is helpful to the problem. Um, And I think that there are some folks who will dive on to anything that that assuages their uh, white guilt or whatever, however you want to put it. So, I mean, I think there is some genuine concern about those kinds of things. Um, Now, just in case you're curious, since you're you're picking up on politics, that quote, actually, by the way, I'm curious, do you think that's a critical theorist talking there? Does that sound like critical theory to you?
1: um it could be yeah, i think it yeah i think it could be
0: that's interesting because this is a direct quote from Lyndon Johnson from the president who signed the equal rights uh or signed the civil rights acts right um mm. so this mm-hmm. is happening in theory prior to um where it seems as far as i can tell that f- that the, like folks like james are locating the origination of critical theory and i i bring this up because it as you were mentioning earlier one of the points of the debate here is: is critical theory just a normal extension of the classic um, civil rights era kinds of social justice, or is it somehow a fundamentally different thing? Right but when i read yeah. a quote like that from the civil rights era it sounds fundamentally identical to a lot of the critical theory stuff that we've also been talking about so it leans it suggests to me some evidence that there really is a lot more continuation of this tradition going on here um i'm curious if it if that influences your views on that at all
1: um yeah a little bit like james and helen's new book cynical theories where they try to Create a timeline of how, you know, critical theory and postmodernism merged in the late '80s, and how it's different from classical postmodernism and classical critical theory. Um, I haven't read the book yet, and I don't know too much about it. I've only read what James puts on his um, website and what they say in their podcast. Their book explains it all, and I'm like, I want to read the book. And uh, and there there is some you know similar themes of Progressivism and liberalism and just classical critical theory. Although, if it's morphed into something different that has not been good for the civil rights goals, then I'd like to see us move back towards other ways of them that has been historically um, gotten us to better places.
0: Mm -hmm. that's totally fair and i totally respect your wanting to say i want i you know i want to research this material more um you know I think that that it's it's perfectly okay to say I don't I don't fully know if I have an answer to this particular question yet, but I'm still trying to work on it. Um, so you mentioned that they merged, right? And I, I guess we don't we don't have the books, so we can't look at their version. But um, this is something that I actually was curious about, Nash, a little bit about before. Um, this idea, the accusation that gets raised against critical theory and attempts to explain what's bad about critical theory, often take the form of critical theory is like a religion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And maybe we can, you know, say, well, they're not they're not saying it's bad like a religion. They're saying it's just like a religion and that whether that's good or bad. Right. We can discuss uh, how to deal with them because they are a religion. So I'm curious, um, do you think that that sort of X is like a religion model of critiquing is valuable in certain situations and sort of and it's something I asked you about before? What are the features that you would say go into making something like a religion in the kind of way that they are criticizing it here? i think
1: it is valuable because if you come across some people trying to do some things and they're and they're like a religion they're like a cult Mm -hmm. and it's very it's more difficult to persuade or change their mind or talk to them Mm -hmm. dogmatic they're fundamentalist and it's just hopeless in trying to have like a usual conversation so it's just Mm -hmm. like a if you're like when people say whatever's a religion just say warning and people are not going to be reasonable when you're talking to them mm-hmm. about that. So I think if if this new version of critical social justice is causing people to act religiously, like they're not going to have these types of cultural conversations, they're just going to act religiously, like accuse people of being certain things, then that would be not good. And that is kind of like religion james comes from the new atheist movement a little bit and uh, i first heard of him from his book everybody is wrong about god and um, that was after he took like years studying the psychology of religion and um he has like a model of what a religion is like in his book he says like it's very hard to define what a religion
0: is impossible some would say
1: very impossible so what he tries to say is it's like a ideologically motivated moral community that's okay. from his, his book so it's like you have people with certain moral intuitions coming together and then mm-hmm. they're using an ideology to motivate them um just to work together it's like uh, he gets a lot of his ideas from the righteous mind you know morality binds and blinds that type of thing yeah so, it, it's so by a, that it's definition very
0: wouldn't effective altruism count as a religion? Maybe, um, maybe. For example, he, he, he defines atheism as a religion,
1: kind of okay. a pseudo religion.
0: So, so a religion is anybody, any community where people come together around a set of values,
1: and it has to be able to meet certain psychological and social needs. And if it does that, like the more needs it meets, oh. the more likely it is that it's a religion.
0: Okay, so it's a community. I mean, this is great for me because I run a cult, and I, I feel like I'm meeting uh-huh. all of these criteria beautifully in the sense that I there is a moral framework for our group, and it brings people together, it seems like, and it provides um, shared experiences and things like that. So this seems to me, though, to just be reducing the word religion down to an idea—like— like, you know, communal ideology or something like that, right? Like what's the difference? I mean, like what's the difference between this and like every ethical view being a religion? It seems like it just, it seems to, it seems to not be what most people think of when they think of the word religion, I guess to, to use that kind of uh, argument back in the other direction.
1: Yeah. His book is like broken up into thirds. third. It's like the fifth chapter is where he tries to define God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the psychological and social needs come in. And it's like, the third of the book that one chapter so it's like mm-hmm. th- these are the criteria so if your' cult if your cult tries to help people feel like they can deny death uh, that's probably a good criteria or it's like do, do they feel more control do they feel like they can make sense of the world using these ideas um, make sense of morality like attribution one um, other? one of the things like social is, needs like
0: is science or religion on this view um no it seems like it meets every criteria you just listed it allows me to better understand uh ethics it allows me is what are the criteria there
1: um, it's like attribution, control, social, well,
0: control my environment. It allows me to create a, a community of like-minded individuals. I guess I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to understand how a community that comes together to engage in the scientific method because it values truth wouldn't qualify as a religion under this definition.
1: You've got, you've got like teleological, you know, purpose, attribution, meaning, attribution,
0: uh, Okay. That's so, that's so, right. so there needs to be a meaning. There needs to be like a your system assigns meaning to people's lives.
1: Yeah, it's just a lot of different psychological and social needs, and mm-hmm. yeah, they do it in a certain way. And it's likely to be a religion.
0: Okay. So in this, so in this view, it seems like right, the bad parts of that are not uh that it provides a community right or that it provides a shared sense of values because street epistemology would be in a lot of trouble then it seems like um but it's that it it creates and this is where i think you know when we talk about cult what we really mean is an, an information isolating cult right a cult whose practices involve cutting people off from other forms of information and controlling them in various kinds of ways as a result right you feel like that's more what he's accusing critical theory of
1: Um, possibly. Yeah. It's like, you don't want dogmatism or fundamentalism. Um, you don't want people to be thinking this is the only thing that is true and I can only feel safe in my community. Mm -hmm. And I can't make sense of it without my community and these ideas. Like I, it's like a, something that just keeps you embedded within this moral community.
0: Okay. I'm very worried about isolationist cults like that too. I think that, for example, I think Trump supporters are caught up in a kind of cult like that that is very harmful to them right now. Um, I'm curious, are you ever worried, right? Do you consider it a possibility that the sort of anti-social justice warrior community is itself becoming an uh, information-depriving cult in this kind of way? I
1: know on YouTube there's like a whole... There was like a skeptic community, which then some people went into like the anti-SGW thing for like a few years. I think it relates to like your all, all right pipeline type of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's that could be the case. There could be anti-SGWs that um, go in their own ideological chamber. Um, I try to just stay away from those, those types of things by learning about. People I mean, and ideas from people who actually believe them.
0: But at the beginning, right, like in, in our in our part one, you said that like Peter and maybe James have been somewhat radicalized in their approach to these things, that they are not really able to get outside of the perspective anymore. Like, do you worry that they have been, been radicalized into a cult kind of mindset in this way that you're describing?
1: I think so. I think they know the theory and they understand it. Mm-hmm. They did get a few papers you know, accepted and published in, in their journals, if that's evidence if for anything. Um, but, do you think uh, it's evidence for anything? A little bit of evidence, yeah.
0: What do you think it's evidence for?
1: That they uh, know what qualifies to get into certain critical social justice journals, and they could continue to get shoddy... Research with unethical ideas consistently into journals. Do you buy
0: their conclusion that the reason they were able to do so is ideological in nature and not the result of other problems within academia?
1: Um, I think it's mostly ideological.
0: Yeah. Okay, I'm curious why. Why do you feel like that's the case?
1: Um, they did the conceptual penis as a social construct like a year before they did the grievance studies and they got a lot of criticism for it. Like, you know, no control group, no, you know, super shoddy journal. It was like pay to play. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a general concern of general academia journals. Like those are not good. Mm -hmm. They had like a a script of what they need to do if they want to actually, you know, make their case that there's a problem in certain fields. And they took that script and they, I think they succeeded a little bit.
0: But they didn't implement a control group in the grievance studies hoax. They, in fact, have explicitly said they didn't need a control group because it's not a scientific study. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's like the fields themselves have standards, and it's just hard. If I'm sure, if they won if they had the time, they could have tried to make an absurd paper about astronomy and get into like a legit astronomy journal. They said they that, that would just be a waste of time. But if you want to test that and see if anything gets into a high, you know, prestige astronomy journal like like Nature or Science, or
0: another well, well, there's no reason journals. to test it because we have, I think, ample evidence that almost every field can get hoaxed, including the anti-SJWs who've been hoaxed on multiple occasions, both Quillet and um, Eon. Or um, Mm -hmm. Eros, excuse me, me, Aero. Um, Aereo. Yeah, Aereo, right? Both got hoaxed. Mm -hmm. And so, right, the mere ability to get hoaxed, it seems like, is not substantial evidence of much, right, without at least some way of, of, of showing why it was the case that you got hoaxed, right? So, for example, right, a control group wouldn't necessarily have to be outside of the grievance studies. They could have written a good, I mean, in theory, they could write a good paper that violates critical theory um, orthodoxy, right? If they understand the orthodoxy well enough, they could write a pro-male paper or something like that and see if it got rejected and see if it got rejected for ideological reasons or something like that. I like that to me would have substantially strengthened their case that this was really about ideology and not about something else. Um, But I'm curious, you know, do you feel like that that weakens their case that they didn't include something like that?
1: I'm not sure they they got a bunch of papers in there in the different journals in the hype like Hypatia there was a uh, article written later on by someone wanting it to be reinstated because even though they're not sincere, their arguments for um something they felt were good arguments, and they should actually go back into the journal um that seems to be something.
0: But are they – is that because they are bound by some critical theory ideology and so they're committed to, like, self-owning? Or is it that, like, it's possible that in that paper something that they said actually was – you know, in in the process of getting close to the theories. Like sometimes when I when I listen to the, your videos with James, for example, he'll say something like that quote that you gave about uh, how to define equity. And I'll listen to it and I'll be like, yeah, that, that seems like a perfectly fine definition, right? But he'll say it in such a way where it's like, God, doesn't this sound so terrible? Um, and I guess I'm sort of wondering if like, you know, I don't. I don't know the specific um, passage or the specific paper that you're referencing there. Um, but you know, maybe it's possible that there is something in something that they wrote that is actually, if not true, worthwhile to the discourse. Right? There's lots of false things that in the history of academia that have been valuable to the discourse that we continue to teach. Um, so I, again, I just feel like I worry that there's. An argument towards a conclusion going on here where anything that could be taken as evidence of uh, ideology is default treated as evidence of ideology until proven otherwise, which is a kind of, it feels to me, begging the question that they're trying to prove. You can see that. Okay. So... I mean, my final concerns here, and part of why I ask about the religion side of it is that I'm also concerned about, as we talked about in part one, about the sovereign nation stuff and like the Trojan horse videos that they are engaged in. Because when you described to me um, sort of earlier the way that this works where things start off in academia in a small fringe or something like that and then it spreads out into society and that causes harm to society, right? These are classic, very classic conservatives conspiracy theory tropes. Um, and when I look at them actively engaging with a group that does promote classical conservative conspiracy theories, it becomes harder to see it as a coincidence that like they they, they appear in my mind to be laundering those ideas through a critic uh centrist liberal lens but in such a way that it then you know feeds right back into these conservative um communities so i mean what do you think about that like how do you how do you go about testing for example and addressing the concern that it you may actually be caught up in a conspiracy theory operation rather than like that this stuff is directly tracking reality
1: mm mm-hmm. mhm there was like a conspiracy at Evergreen State College to get Brett Weinstein, you know, fired from his um, university uh-huh. position from a bunch of critical social justice activists. And that was like, a, I guess we could take that as a microcosm of what's happening today in society, possibly. I see a lot of people on Twitter saying we're now, you know, this is now Evergreen State College on a in massive scale, you know, because of the protests and a bunch yeah. of responses to you, you that. Buy that? It, it's a plausible hypothesis now, I think. And I think we'll be able to test that in the future to see so what
0: happens. You, so you think it's plausible that the current um, protests in the streets are the result of critical theory run amok rather than people having genuine outrage over systemic inequality and police brutality?
1: I think it's 99% of people who are just not critical theorists. They just want to be good people using the critical theory language and terms, you know, that's just in the zeitgeist in the culture. And I think now that these um, ideas are in the culture, then institutions will be trying to implement these ideas in their institutions. And if they are revolutionary, you know, problematic ideas, then we'll see what happens to the institutions themselves. Will they become more liberal, more open, or will they become more critical theory, you know, critical social justice types institutions where they censor and do more liberal things and they try to revolutionize whatever companies they have implementing, Mm -hmm. you know, authoritarian policies. So we'll we'll see.
0: So if... Ten years from now, there was not a like overwhelming like surge of critical theory. you know, like Jordan Peterson's worst fears. everybody on the street <laughs> has to gender everybody correctly or they get sent to jail immediately, right? Like if none of that happens, right? like if ten years from now, we're still plodding along trying to achieve higher levels of equity. Um, does that mean that this was sort of an overblown conspiracy theory?
1: I think so. That would be a good way to test that.
0: Okay, well that's cool. I'll have you back on in ten years, and we can. I'm very curious to follow up on that, actually, um, because I mean, yeah. like, this is something that I commonly have a problem with. Here is I try to find out what is it that you're afraid is going to happen, like. What What is at the end of the, you know, critical theory uh, rainbow, right? And it feels like what's there is either very mild or very implausible. But rarely do I see any, like, clean line between what is happening in the present right now and anything like the kinds of dystopias that people seem to be afraid of. Um, you know, whereas instead what I just see is, again, like, Boiling down to pushbacks on attempts of people who are just trying to do social justice as being, you know, accused of doing critical social justice. And then, and like the the whole thing about 99% of them are good people and 1% of them are sort of agitators. This again goes back to these sort of classic, often anti Semitic tropes that social justice is a tool used by a small group of elites to bring about massive social change at the cost of their political enemies. Um, And I really just genuinely worry that that idea is just being sort of straight out laundered through this operation. Do you have a way that I can, you know, know that's not the case?
1: I think James is like, has an article or a podcast about this. It's like a conspiracy without any any conspirators. There is no people at the top. There are no, you know, know, people controlling things it is a cultural thing it's a bottom-up thing but the ideas that get into the bottom are coming from the specific fields and if they their claim is if they use them to their logical conclusion we will find we'll, we'll have more authoritarian policies and stuff going on in society like, okay. to, you know, and possibly revolution
0: okay so if we instead, Right, brought about criminal justice reform and mm-hmm. wealth inequality reform, and got you know um, healthcare reform and various things like this. Right, finally ratified the Equal Rights Amendment or something like that. Right, those are not examples. It seems to you of everything's turning into evergreen. Right, it would have to be that they were like authoritarian and overbearing in some kind of nature.
1: Yeah, it would have to be authoritarian not democratic, not, you know, progressive liberal, progressive methods. It would have mm-hmm. to be trying to get people fired because they are perceived as racist for not, you know, putting stuff on their Instagram or, you know, being actively anti-racist
0: or whatever. So you think people should be fired for being racist. No, I don't really depending on the job. So if I'm explicitly making racist comments around my workplace, that's, Or is that different from being, were you meaning like if I quietly am racist in my own room, I shouldn't get fired? Whereas I meant like if I act like a racist openly in such a way that other human beings can know that I'm a racist.
1: I think if all racists didn't have jobs, we would have very bad social problems. So like (laughs) ideally racists are in like low level positions in society, not in high prestige places. Some, you know, Presidents of universities can be fired for being racists. You know, people can be impeached for being racists.
0: Can't we just say that that you, what you've just said is the critical theorist dream? What dream of like the the anti-racists get to run everything and the racists have to do all the menial labor? Uh, I don't.
1: I, don't it's a, I think it's a liberal principle. Um, racism is a false idea, so you'd have. You have no claims to being in a position where you have expertise on these ideas. It's about about falsity rather than harm.
0: So if I was a professor who expressed explicitly racist ideas, that would be a good reason to have me dismissed? Um, Or at least relegated to a position where I can't have power over any individuals? Because we depend
1: on what you mean by the racist speech? If it's like trying to put forward the you know the, the race realism type data, um, I don't think that would be qualifying. But if people say, you know, mm-hmm. this race is superior. Um, That would would qualify, for sure.
0: So if I were to, for example, say, you know, I read Charles Murray and there's differences between the races in terms of their IQ levels. And as a result, given that how hard philosophy is as an abstract reasoning kind of activity, that I will discourage, actively discourage people of color and maybe women from being members of um, philosophy or pursuing philosophy because they're not as well equipped for it. Does that seem... Problematic? Does that seem fine?
1: That's a claim about capacity because of immutable characteristics. That seems um, problematic.
0: Okay. I mean, it's something that's traditionally been said amongst philosophers, and it's why philosophy departments are amongst the least um, diverse in all of academia. Um, so I was just curious if... Like, there's was, there was an example of one professor who'd been making comments like this, and he was effectively like, you know, they, they, they didn't outright fire him, but they were basically like, we're going to make sure that he never has power over anyone's grades ever, in a sort of way to protect people from those particular views, which I thought was an interesting compromise position that they engaged in, while also, like, explicitly being like, we do not agree with his terribly racist viewpoint. Um, so... I guess the other one, I guess we could imagine if, if you're, if y'all are right in 10 years down the line or something, there will have been a lot more cancellations, right? Like in the great canceling um, events of the world, right? There would be in theory, a bunch more people who get canceled for what seemed to be not significant injustices or or inappropriate behaviors or something like that. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think, I'm curious, actually, do you link Me Too with this stuff? Do you feel like Me Too is a form of, uh, you know, grievance critical theory run amok?
1: I haven't thought about it too much. There, I guess the, the thing that started Me Too was like Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. and then it's just trying to get into the believe all women. I think that was a claim from Me Too, like which is more charitably just saying, you know, take. Sexual assault claims more seriously. Mm-hmm. um If that version, I think, is not really a grievance, you know, critical social justice type of thing, but if it's believe all women because they are women, because women have mm-hmm. special knowledge because of their sex, mm-hmm. and they have special knowledge because of their sex has been historically marginalized, and that just gives them special mm-hmm. access to certain knowledge. Mm-hmm. That version of claims, we might be more aligned with critical social justice.
0: Oh, we, didn't even get, we didn't even get to talks of um, standpoint epistemology, and we're already out of time on our second uh, hour. So. Maybe not the time oh where does it go um but i do appreciate you coming in and chatting about this stuff and and being honest about um what your views are and where you feel like you um need to get more information versus not on those particular views i think this has been hopefully a valuable discussion uh (laughs) they'll let the listeners decide um on that do you um so uh before I, l- I let you um, go, though, I got to I got to put you through the ringer here. So this is oh our enlightening round. right? Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me if those things are real or not real. Those mm-hmm. are your two options. You cannot hedge in any way. Real or not real. Okay. Real mean,
1: real, we'll see.
0: That's You don't have to define what real means. Uh, that's that's between you and your non-existent Lord. Um so, are you are you ready? Ready. Okay. Yes. Do you think that anything is real? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, that, that's an important question for the philosophers, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> um, do, do you think the external world is real? Yes. Okay. Do you think that colors are real? Yes. Okay. Do you think that phenomenal consciousness is real? Yes. You think that free will is real? No. Mm. What about selves or persons? Yes. Okay, genders? Yes. Races? Yes. Species? Yes. Morality? Yes. Rights? Yes. Knowledge. Yes. Gods or God. No. Society. Yes. <laughs> Re- uh, money. Yes. Numbers. Yes. Fictional characters. No. Holes, as in a hole in the ground? Yes. Chairs? Yes. Sandwiches? Yes. Science? Uh, yes. <laughs> Natural laws? Yes. <laughs> These are the question marks at the end of a lot of these yeses. Uh, beauty? Mm, yes. Causality? Yes. And finally, time? Yes. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? Um, Good. Okay, you made it through. Good job. Congratulations. Um, So... Thank you so much for coming again, Reed. Do you want to let folks know one more time where they can find your material?
1: Yeah, and just search Core to Curiosity. I'm on YouTube and uh, Twitter,
0: and the uh, SE International. You can find, I guess, via Google.
1: Yes, if you'd like to support Street Epistemology, we have a new nonprofit, Street Epistemology International. Um, I'm the president, and hope you know my words here today were not just me, Reed, but please support Street Epistemology International.
0: Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Um, and I'd like to thank some new patrons. Thanks to ARIPSA and the testimony of Mushroom. Um, as always, of course, I want to thank our top patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jesse Rubinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb blacknonbelievers.com 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 and Chad T. And of course, all the love and thanks to our top tier $40 lifetime support patrons, Dave Maslitch and the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon. Thank you all so much for making all of this possible. I really hope you're enjoying uh, the content that is coming about as a result of your donations. Um... I'd also like to say, if you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. Uh, and if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at Patreon.com slash void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. We'll be starting a new book soon, so join in. Um, most importantly, remember, you are the void and the void is you.